Welcome to Life on Earth, The Peace Project, a podcast that teaches you how to connect with the divine and transform darkness into light through topics from yoga to nature and ultimately love. Join your host, Natalie Kwa, to celebrate and encourage diversity, peace and global equality, one earthling at a time. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Life on Earth podcast. Welcome and have a very special guest, Miss Dr. Rebecca Hutchins. <laughs> Hello. Hi, everybody. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the name of this presentation today? So today I'm going to be talking about meditation and the title of this topic is Meditation, the Mythical Medical Panacea. And what this is, is a review of all the literature supporting the medical benefits of meditation and the underlying physiology to explain these benefits. And I'll tell you why I put this talk together and what it means to me. I have been practicing yoga for a long time. Over 20 years, I started in medical school as really a way to help me regulate some of my stress and sleep issues. And I've been practicing yoga over many years. And in some ways, with yoga, it's easy to see the physical benefits. And so it's easy to keep going with it. And I started looking into meditation as something that was an important adjunct to what I was doing and something that could help build what I was doing. And I really struggled with it. I find it very difficult to sit still. I find it very difficult to make the time to meditate in my schedule. And if I was going to do it, I needed to feel like I had some answers about what I was doing. And since I am a physician, and this is where my training and my strengths lie, I turned to the medical literature to see what were the benefits of what I was doing. And I figured if I could find some answers for myself, it would help me have a little motivation in what I was doing. And I will tell you, I still find the practice of meditation very difficult, but I work at it. And I work at it on a regular basis, and sometimes it's very satisfying, and it's easy, and other times it's not. That's just my personal experience with it. But I felt like if I was going to be doing this and spending time on it, I didn't want it to be magic or voodoo or something like that. I wanted it to be something that felt real to me. And so this is where I went with this topic. And I had a good time looking this stuff up and reading these articles. And it's been fun talking to people about this because I think it gives you a little something other than just, oh, you're going to sit here and everything is going to change for you. Because when you do sit there and everything doesn't change for you on the first time that you ever meditate, it can be really frustrating to try and continue doing this and dedicate your time to it when things aren't changing. When you practice yoga, you do feel a lot of those changes sometimes much faster and they're more noticeable. Like, oh, I feel more flexible. I feel stronger. I feel like my sleep pattern is working better. And so having something tangible helps. So that's why I put this together and, and what the interest was for me. Yeah, thank you for, for doing that because we're all benefiting from it. <laughs> so what do we hear about meditation? We hear all kinds of things. You hear stuff in the news media and you hear celebrities are meditating and you hear very famous rich people do it all the time. And it's like this cure-all. It's your path to enlightenment. It treats depression, stress, anxiety, addiction, chronic pain, insomnia. Like this is really the thing that everybody says like, oh no, this fixes everything. So, you know, it's like 
magic, it sounds like, and it enhances your motor reflexes and your motor control, and it increases your exercise tolerance, and it sharpens your perceptions about things going on in the world around you, and increases your awareness, improves your concentration, provides a general positive outlook on your life, and maintains your health. And so again, I have to ask, how is that possible? What are we talking about here? <laughs> this is the best bottle of wine you've ever had that fixes everything. You know, where are we going with this? So, you know, when we look at studies about this, you have to focus on things that are measurable. So sometimes it's a little hard to grasp some of what these studies are doing because they, they are limited by something measurable. We have to work within the realm of science when we measure this stuff. And so what do we know? Well, we look about things. So the first thing that a lot of people looked at was how meditation affects your metabolism. Because we know a lot about metabolism and how that works and what the effects are on your body. And what we know about stress from a lot of different studies is that stress puts you into a hypermetabolic state. And you might think like, oh, hypermetabolic, that means I'm going to be losing more weight. But in the long term, what that means for your body is increased stress on your body, increased stress on your heart system, on your blood vessels, on your organs. So you don't want to be in a hypermetabolic state all the time. It increases your oxygen consumption when you're in a stress state. It increases your heart rate, and it increases your blood pressure. And we know scientifically as a fact that on a regular basis, you don't want to have this increased tone. You want to be at a more even keel place. And so what we've seen is that meditation allows your body to go into a decreased metabolic state. So you're decreasing your heart rate, you're decreasing your blood pressure, and you decrease the oxygen utilization and carbon dioxide elimination by muscle. So you're slowing that rate. And essentially, in some ways, when you think about slowing that rate, you slow your aging process. So animals that have a really high metabolic rate live less. So a mouse, for example, has a high resting heart rate, a high blood pressure, and uses a lot of oxygen. And it lives much less longer than a larger animal, like an elephant, that has a much lower heart rate, lower blood pressure, and this lower consumption rate has a longer lifespan. So that's what we're going for in this when we talk about like what are the benefits of meditation and how it affects your metabolism. There are certain chemicals that we can measure. And so when we look at it from a scientific standpoint, we look at the chemicals that we can measure and we look at the effect on those. And there's probably other things that we can't measure that are also beneficial. But again, from that scientific standpoint, we're looking for something that we can measure. So some of the things we're going to talk about today include the neurotransmitter GABA, so that's G-A-B-A, stress hormones like lactate, insulin, cortisol, and epinephrine. So those are sort of your big guns that we know a lot about and we know how to measure them and we also understand the effect that they have on the body. So we're going to start talking about GABA and it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter. 
And so the receptors in your brain that read the GABA message are also acted on by our anti-anxiety medications. So if you take medicine for anxiety, what it's working on in your brain is the GABA receptors. And the changes induced by meditation are similar to the effects of that inhibitory neurotransmitter, GABA. So what that means is meditation produces its anxiolytic effect by promoting GABA action in specific areas of the brain in a mechanism that's similar to the effects of the synthetic drugs and tranquilizing agents that people take. It's also similar to the effects that alcohol has. So that's the same neurotransmitter that alcohol benzodiazepines like Valium or Xanax or something like that, um, and some of the other drugs, like some of them are serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but some of the other anxiolytics work on those transmitters as well. So essentially what you're doing is creating a state in your brain that's similar to taking one of these drugs, and we can measure that. We'll talk about lactate next. And lactate, I really like this study just because of, we'll get to why it's pretty cool, but infusion of lactate can produce anxiety symptoms in normal subjects. And what they do is they find people who are willing to volunteer for these studies and they say, listen, we're going to inject you with a natural substance and we're going to see what it does to you. And I used to do stuff like this when I was in college and medical school is volunteer for extra cash to do these kinds of studies. So you find normal, healthy people who say, yeah, sure, inject me. I'll take the $50. I want to know what happens. Anyway, it's kind of cool. And so one of the things they saw in these kinds of studies is that decreased lactate concentration during and after meditation can explain that subjective feeling of wakeful relaxation that you get. And they've also found that when they measure lactate levels, you have the decreased levels that persist in into the post-meditation period. So it's not just when you're sitting in your quiet state and you're meditating, but if you measure the levels the next day or a week later, they're lower too. Insulin is another one of the hormones that we look at that's involved in this whole process. And we hear a lot about insulin because that's our primary um, hormone that's part of diabetes. And we also talk about insulin resistance and how it relates to our obesity problem in this country and how it relates to what we call the metabolic syndrome, which is essentially a pre-diabetic state where you are overweight, you have decreased activity of insulin, you have increased resistance to insulin, your body doesn't metabolize as well, and it sets you on a path to a whole lot of other problems like heart disease. Insulin is involved in our blood sugar regulation. And they have found that meditation decreases the insulin resistance. It decreases your blood sugar levels. Interestingly, despite this, it has minimal change in your lipid profiles. So insulin is important in how you how your body regulates your lipid profiles, but for whatever reason, meditation doesn't seem to alter your lipid profiles. Um, and meditation, they're looking at as a potential therapy for that metabolic syndrome. Like, hey, is there another way we can address this other than starting drugs like metformin? Is there something else we can do as an intervention for patients, either as an adjunct to drugs or an alternative to drugs? Cortisol, which is a glucocorticosteroid, is what we call the stress hormone. Um, this is one that you hear about a lot also in the popular press, and this is one that's well-studied because this is the 
hormone that we've looked at in regards to people who work night shifts. And I've read a lot about this because I do work a lot of night shifts, and I actually used to work exclusively night shifts. Uh, my job has me transitioning otherwise, but I have spent years of my life working only night shifts. And so I was particularly interested in this. And essentially, when your cortisol levels go up, you have decreased inflammatory and immune response, which means you're more likely to get sick. <laughs> you have increased effects of epinephrine and norepinephrine. So epinephrine and norepinephrine are your fight or flight uh, chemical mediators. So you have this increased sort of stress state that happens if you have increased effects of these um, chemicals in your body. So you're kind of always on the, I don't know how to explain it exactly, but you're like always on the go. Like you're always at this high level of like, go, 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 stress, stress, stress. Um, it has anti-insulin activity, which means that inhibits your metabolism and it increases your plasma lipids. So, you know, you might ask, like, why do we have this stress hormone at all? Well, the reason that we have it is for evolutionary purposes, because there are times in your life where you have stress and you need to be at a higher tone. You need to be able to create and store more fat in your body because starvation could be coming if, you know, you're not able to catch a woolly mammoth, um, you know, you need to have a sort of slower metabolism in a way. You need to better store these things for the winter. You need to be better prepared if a saber-toothed tiger comes at you. These are not things that we need necessarily so much in our day-to-day -day life now, or certainly not at the levels that we may have used to have needed these things. But it turns out night shift people seem to sort of... <laughs> be at this level all the time. So if you are a night shift person or if you realize you have a very high stress life, lifestyle, it's okay to do that. You just have to know ahead of time, okay, I need to be a little more keyed into the fact that I'm going to have slower metabolism. If I don't pay attention to my sleep cycles, I'm gonna be more prone to getting sick. And so I have to pay attention to that. I have to take better care of myself. I need to eat a little bit more healthy than the average person. I need to drink less alcohol, not smoke cigarettes. And and if you do that, then you combat those effects. And so they've looked at meditation also as something that you can use as a tool in dealing with cortisol levels. There was a really cool study that was done by Walton et al. And they looked at the cortisol levels. And so they tested levels in healthy patients in the urine and the saliva. So you can measure this. And it's nice because you can measure it without also sticking somebody because if you stick someone for a blood test, that can increase your stress as well. So this is sort of a non-invasive way to measure levels of the stress hormone. And what they did was they increased, introduced a stressor, and what they used as their stressor, and I think this is brilliant, is 75 grams of glucose orally. So what did they do? They gave these people a huge sugar load. And if you think about what this means also just on a different level, like when we talk about our diet and what we do to ourselves in our diet and simple sugars, eating a big sugar load is a major stress on your body to the point where it can create anxiety. And so I keep that in the back of my mind when I read this kind of study and I think I probably shouldn't have that Snickers bar. It will feel good in the moment, but it produces physical stress on my body beyond just the calories you might not need or 
the fat you might not need. It's a physical stressor. And they found that in the meditation group that they looked at here after giving this stress load, that the meditation group had lower cortisol levels, and it was three times lower in the meditation group than in the non-meditation group. So that was a cool study for that purpose, for a lot of reasons for me, just in terms of what it made me think about, about how my diet plays into this too. Because of course, we like to think about our exercise, our meditation, our mental health, our diet, and people get very focused on one thing to fix, because sometimes it's easier to fix one thing, but of course, all of it really works together. Um, Another thing that you can monitor that they looked at in these studies, and this is sort of complicated to explain and probably not that important to understand the details, but in the autonomic nervous system, they looked at what was called the galvanic skin response. So this is your GSR. And so what is that? It's your skin's resistance to electrical current, and it's a measure of reactivity. And why is this important? Well, it's important because it's something we can measure. So essentially, they would take an electrode and put it on your arm here and another one here, and they measure the electrical current between it. If you remember, we did experiments like this in high school physics, where you would put an electrode on one side of a potato and on the other side a potato, and you could measure the current going in between. So this is nice to look at because it's something measurable, and we've also realized that it has some correlation to something with within our bodies. So increase in skin resistance translates to a decreased conduction and decreased fluctuations in your GSR. And so your GSR increases in states of anxiety and it decreases during relaxation. So this is something measurable and this is something that we've been able to see and so it's a nice thing to look at as a marker when we do studies and meditation. So your GSR Spontaneous GSRs are unprovoked fluctuations in your skin resistance. And your frequency of your spontaneous GSRs, so these sort of spikes that you see, defines your lability of an individual in regards to stress. And so your frequency rises with anger and fear, and it also rises with increased epinephrine and norepinephrine blood levels. So if we increase those fight or flight hormones, you see an increase in the reactivity in this skin, and not just an increase in the reactivity, but an increase in the lability. So you'll see these sort of up and down spikes that are much more, if you were to plot it out on a piece of paper, it would look more like big up and down scribbles as opposed to a more even keeled line. And nicely, that translates to a more even keel person versus a more up and down kind of person. So lower frequencies of your spontaneous spikes in this GSR are associated with more effective behavior in stressful situations, less impulsive, impulsivity on motor tasks, quicker perceptions and response times, and it correlates with physiologic and behavioral characteristics associated with good mental health. So when we talk about meditation as something that causes you to have, you know, oh yeah, I have better focus and I'm better able to do tasks when I'm meditating more often, this is a nice way to measure this more than just your subjective feeling of, no, I feel better at this because we have to do more than just, I feel better at this. So meditation, of course, what they looked at was it decreased the frequency of your spontaneous spikes. So you didn't see these big, huge spikes coming up and down. It was more even keel. 
And the way that they measure this was in a lab. It was usually psychologists doing these studies, and most of the stuff was done in the 70s and 80s, actually. But they essentially would hook the electrodes to your skin. You were either in the meditation group or the non-meditation group. And then they would give you sort of rapid-fire tasks like, you know, identify the, you know, all the red cards quickly as I flash them in front of you, or memory tasks like essentially playing that memory game we used to play as kids, like can you remember where things are? And it was they measured your response times and how quickly you got things right and how many times you got things right. There was a study uh, by Orm Johnson in 1973, and again, I said this stuff was done a lot in the 70s, and for better or for worse, we seem to have more interest in how this stuff affected us in the 70s. And unfortunately, part of this responds to um, big pharma and money and where the money comes from for research studies, and we had more of an interest in the 70s. Uh, But they measured your GSR in response to stress. So essentially, they created stress situations for you in a lab and looked at what happened to your skin And the meditators recovered from their stress more quickly than the non-meditators. And the GSR sort of, everybody would have a fluctuation at first. So nobody's immune to stress. So maybe they would show you a traumatic image and they would measure what happened in your skin and everybody would have a spike at first. But the meditators would habituate more quickly. So their spikes would go down faster, and then they would equalize out and get into that more steady state. There was greater stability in response to stress and less fluctuations overall for the meditators. And these changes carried over into the non-meditative state. So you would have somebody meditating and you could measure what was happening on their skin and you would see decreased reactivity. But then you would also say, like, let's look at you tomorrow and see what happens. And the group that was meditating would do better tomorrow also. This one was sort of one of the things we're looking at in terms of how does this affect your cardiovascular health. There was a study done by Jevnig et al. in 1996, and they were looking at blood flow mediators to determine your distribution of flows. So they wanted to see like what happens to your body when you're meditating and how does that affect you? Because we know what happens when, when you're eating There's increased blood flow to your GI tract to help you metabolize and deal with what's going on in your GI tract. When you're exercising, you get better flow in your cardiovascular system. And actually, when you're thinking and concentrating on tasks, you have more flow to your brain. So your body is able to mediate where blood goes. And that mediation where blood goes helps bring oxygen-rich blood to the areas where your body needs it. And so they saw that when you are actually sitting in the process of meditating, your blood flow to your kidneys and your liver went down. So some of your metabolic stuff in terms of elimination of toxins went down, but the blood flow to the brain increased. So you were helping get toxins out of the brain and bringing good oxygen-rich blood to the brain. In 2009, a study done by Luders was they looked at the MRI of brains of meditators. And this one's a good one in terms of giving you the motivation to stick with this process. 
the meditators that they looked at were not just people who were meditating in the moment or volunteers who took a two-week meditation course and then had blood tests done. These were people who were meditating for five years or greater. So these were people who were essentially on the path towards being lifelong meditators. And they showed actual physical changes in the brain. Um, And the reason they did this study was because they started out with a group of medical students who they wanted to look at how things changed if you learned a task. So they had a group of medical students who learned how to juggle. And they got an MRI before they learned how to juggle and an MRI afterwards. And they showed that there were actually changes in these medical students' brains after they learned how to juggle. You could see physical changes like, oh, wow, the map of the brain looks a little bit different. And so they thought, oh, what happens if you're a meditator and there's a change in the map of your brain if you're meditating for five years or longer? And so there's increased gray matter in the areas associated with attention, emotional regulation, and mental flexibility. And this proves to be something that's probably going to be pretty important when we look at how meditation affects us as we age. Because one of the things that happens as we age is we lose that good gray matter and the differentiation between gray and white matter sort of blends and blurs. And you lose some of the volume of your brain essentially in all areas, but in the gray matter, you see that, and then you see this decreased emotional regulation, decreased flexibility in your brain, ability to learn new tasks. And so there's a lot of talk in looking at how does meditation, and particularly lifelong meditation, affect people in the path towards dementia? And is this something that if we can institute early on and really create this as a preventative care approach, can we change the face of what's happening for a lot of people as they age? And a lot of us, thankfully, are aging much further than we used to. And so this is a real issue about like, how do we keep ourselves mentally fit as we progress into old age, when we turn 80, when we turn 90? What can we do to stay sharp? And so they're starting to look at this because you really do see physical changes in the brain. And when you look at people with dementia and you can you know, you see like, what are the changes that are happening? We're seeing shrinking brain tissue. We're seeing loss of that gray matter. So can you build it up? Can you essentially work it out by meditating? They did a study in, at Harvard in 2012, so moving a little bit forward, closer to today's time out of the 70s. And they looked at MRIs of the brains of participants in an eight-week meditative course. And they did an MRI three weeks before and three weeks after. And I really like this study because one of the things that some of the other studies are lacking is they just looked at people who were meditating versus people who are not meditating. But the problem with that setup in a study is if you're part of a group that's being provided with some sort of intervention, it's possible that you might make other life changes at the same time. Like if you're taking a meditation course for eight weeks it's very possible that during that time you may also be exercising more and you might be having a better diet and just general in a better place about what you're doing because of the overall positive effects of what you're doing and how you feel about what you're doing. And so this study set up three groups, all of which had a positive intervention. And so by doing that, they were trying to control for 
what were the people doing outside of the study? So how can we make sure that all three groups are also getting that positive effect and maybe increasing their exercise and improving their diet? So group one was the mindful attention meditation. So that was essentially like a transcendental meditation group. So this is the TM group. And then group two did compassion meditation. And so that was like a meditation program where they were looking at having positive or compassionate feelings when you thought about things that were happening to other people. So you might be given an image of refugees in Africa and you're supposed to look at it and try and create compassionate and emotional feelings about that. And that was what you were supposed to focus on in your meditation as opposed to the breath work or a body scan or something along those lines. And the third group had a health education intervention. So they were given instructions about a healthy diet and exercise and spending time on yourself, things like that, maybe journal writing. They were given this wellness intervention. And they did this study built on the previous knowledge that during meditation, your amygdala is less responsive to emotional stimuli. So a part of your brain is when you meditate, we've seen seems to be a little less responsive to emotional stimuli. And so this was the first study to show changes in responsiveness in this one area of your brain that also persisted outside the meditative space. So they kind of isolated a part of the brain that we knew we were looking at and then looked carefully at it when we did three different things to that part of the brain. And so group one showed decreased activity in the right side of their amygdala, and that correlated with less emotional ability. So those people were less... They had less ups and downs and were more even keel. In group two, they had increased activity in their left amygdala, which actually correlated with decreased depression, increased compassion associated with negative imagery. So when you look at this, you might want to think to yourself, what am I trying to achieve with my meditation practice? Am I trying to be less stressed, less upset about things? Am I already a very sensitive person who feels everything deeply? Do I need to take a step back from that and use meditation as a way to be more calm and collected in some of these emotional and compassion-evoking situations? Or should I practice compassion meditation and use that to help me with having increased compassion and also decreased depression? So these people who were in the second group had decreased subjective levels of depression. And group three, which had the health intervention, uh, had no changes in their amygdala function at all. So if you are getting a health education at a Harvard Medical Center where they're talking to you about diet and exercise and journal writing and self-care, that does not change your brain at all. And I thought that was interesting because I'm definitely one of those people who have always felt like if you just make positive changes, it's a positive change. And that's probably true on some level, but not true necessarily in how your brain is remodeled and where you have increased activity in your brain. So uh, we talked about this a little bit, but looking at meditation in terms of age-related cognitive decline is kind of 
the next step in what we're doing with meditation and where the research is going to go. And as we see an aging population, I think this is very important. And it, research is suggesting but not proving yet that meditation can slow the process. And part of this is due to the glucocorticosteroids. So cortisol, your stress hormone, also is responsible for a lot of the negative effects of aging on our body. And so combating the effects of cortisol through meditation may be a path towards combating some of those negative effects as we age. Inflammation in the brain is also one of the negative effects of aging, and so decreasing the inflammation can be part of this. Your serotonin metabolism and gray matter remodeling, so how that gray matter in the brain goes away is part of what's responsible for what we see in age-related dementia and cognitive decline, and so looking at meditation as a way to boost that up, and probably it's only going to work if you start ahead of time. So starting after the gray matter is already gone or going away is most likely not going to help you is what research suggests. But that if you work on building it up before it goes away, that may be the way to prevent some of this. And of course, again, nothing works in a vacuum. Nothing is going to be the cure-all. But if we can create a comprehensive care plan for patients or yourself or family members, that may be where we're going with meditation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about EEG patterns. EEG is a way that we look at brain waves. And interestingly, as different as everybody's brain is, if you put a bunch of electrodes on your scalp and look at the waves, they're similar in all people. So there's very distinct patterns that we see that are similar in all people and similar depending on what you're doing. So if you're awake or you're sleeping, you have specific patterns. There's nothing really in terms of what we've proven in meditation with this, but it's interesting to see that you do create a distinct pattern. And so what it does tell us is that when you meditate, it's not just like sleeping or relaxing or getting a massage or something like that. You're actually doing something different. So we see delta waves, which is just how they describe a certain pattern of waves and it's present in sleep but rare in meditation so it's one of the ways that we know that meditation is different than sleep you see beta waves present during goal-oriented tasks but also rare in meditation alpha waves are present and prevalent during meditation and are suggestive of a wakeful resting state so that's kind of the difference of what we talk about when we say, no, this is not just laying down on the floor and almost falling asleep. This is being in a restful but wakeful state. And advanced practitioners of meditation demonstrate an increased slowing of the brain waves. And there's a theta wave pattern that emerges. And this is characteristic of deep relaxation, but it's also something you have to be able to train yourself to do. So a first-time meditator who just sits there and is quietly closing their eyes and trying to focus on the breath, you're not going to see the theta waves, but you will see them in the people who have an advanced and regular practice. So I think what that shows you again is that the long-term practice of these things changes the actual physical and physiology of your brain. So it creates different electric impulses in your brain. So you, you build a skill that you wouldn't otherwise have. 
one of the big things we're looking at in terms of meditation is also cardiovascular health. And we know that depression is associated with increased cardiovascular mortality and morbidity. And we know that psychological stress also increases cardiovascular disease. Things that we can measure in cardiovascular disease and things that we look to target when we talk about drug development we can also look to target and see, does meditation play into this? So increased platelet reactivity impairs their function and causes clot formation. And it's those clots that cause you to have a heart attack or a stroke because it blocks off the flow of blood coming from behind where the clot is. Increased sympathetic outflow, so that sort of fight or flight thing we talk about, when you have high tone and your heart rate is up all the time and your blood pressure is up all the time, essentially it causes wear and tear on your system. So if you're always pumping your heart super, super hard, it gets tired and it gets worn out. And if your blood vessels are always having a heart that pumps against it and blood is like swooshing out of the heart and sort of ripping through those blood vessels, well, it's ripping through those blood vessels and it's causing damage in the blood vessels and you get little clots that form. Just like if you cause damage on the skin, you get a scab, the same thing happens on the inside. And so having this increased tone all the time is part of what causes us to get heart disease. Also, decreased heart rate variability is bad. So it's okay to have a high heart rate sometimes, but you want it to come back down. So you don't want to have your heart rate just like go up and stay up or always be down, but then you're not working the blood vessels. You're essentially just leaving them exactly where they are. So they're not working out, I guess is the best way to explain that. Increased resting heart rate is bad for you. So if your heart rate is always at 100 instead of at 60 or 70, that's not good either. You don't want to be running all the time on your knees. If you're always running, your knees get tired and injured. If you run sometimes, it's fine, but you have to rest sometimes too. And we treat our heart and our blood vessels the same way we treat our elbows and our knees and our hips. Also, your decreased post-exercise recovery is another thing that's bad for your heart. So if you get your heart rate up to 140 because you're running, that's fine. You're, it's okay to do that to your system. But then your heart rate should come back down again. What you don't want to see in your body is that heart rate going up to 140 and then staying at 140 for the next three hours because that's gonna put strain on your system. So these are the things that we know cause heart disease and cause damage in our cardiovascular system. And so these are also things that we've looked at specifically as how can meditation help? They did a study by DeLuy et al. where they looked at meditation in patients with cardiovascular disease and depression. And those were sort of the outcomes that they were trying to monitor was like, how did this affect your depression scales? And they, they look at this by answering surveys for patients about quality of life type issues. And how does it affect your overall cardiovascular health? And so they looked at three groups. They had a group that was given a relaxation intervention they had a group that was given a meditation intervention and a group that was the control that had nothing. 
And the meditation group showed reduction in depression scores, systolic blood pressure. And so your systolic blood pressure is the top number. You know, when you get a blood pressure reading and it says like, oh, your blood pressure is 120 over 80. Your systolic blood pressure is the top number. So you had a decrease in the top number. And people who uh, did meditation also had a decreased resting heart rate. So their heart rate just when they were sitting here listening to a talk was lower. One of the things they also wanted to look at was endothelial dysfunction. And this essentially is how do the cells that line the inside of your blood vessels react? And we know that if you have bad function in the cells in your blood vessels, that's associated with increased heart disease. And this is a consequence of metabolic disease. So if you have that metabolic syndrome that I mentioned earlier, where you have increased insulin resistance, your blood sugar is higher, your plasma lipids, so the fat running through your blood is higher, this is going to cause increased cardiovascular disease. And that's what we are measuring is the endothelial dysfunction. So that's the word we use to describe that. And what does that lead to? That leads to atherosclerosis and clot formation. So that's sort of the backbone of what heart disease is and what it does. There was a study by Vaccarino and Viola et al. And they looked at two groups and they had a health education intervention and a meditation intervention. And again, I like the design of this study because I think the ones that have a control group where you get nothing really doesn't give you a good sense of what it is you're, you're testing for. And so they looked at endothelial function and they assessed it by essentially flow in an artery, in your brachial artery. Uh, so they looked at an artery up here in your arm and they looked at the flow and the dilation of that artery because you can measure that. And they looked at it at baseline at six months and at 12 months. And unfortunately, the meditation group showed really no improvement in your vascular endothelial activity. So it didn't really show any difference in flow. But there were changes in the secondary outcomes which showed lifestyle trends away from other of your cardiovascular risk factors. Like they had a decrease in smoking, they had a decrease in stress and emotional ability. So while they were not able in this study to show something concrete, it didn't actually change the blood flow. It did show a lot of the other secondary things. And it showed an increase that was more than just the people who had health education intervention. And so that's why I like this study, even though, you know, when you do a study, you're not guaranteed to have success. And if you were guaranteed to have success, then there would really be no point in doing this stuff. You know, you ask questions when you do research, and sometimes the questions don't get answered, but it points you in one direction or another of like, where do I go from here? And so what I liked about this study was that the health education intervention didn't really show those changes, even though it seems like it should have. So something is going on with meditation that improves your lifestyle. And this study also, what I liked about this in terms of reading it for my own personal benefit, was that this was based on a previous study that included yoga. So there was a study that they had done prior that looked at yoga and meditation as an intervention. And in the yoga study, there actually was improvement in your vascular tone and your endothelial activity. So they did have better flow through the blood vessels in the yoga study. Now, where do you want to go with this? I would say probably from a physician standpoint that any exercise would cause that. And I would not deter anyone from doing that or say, no, well, yoga's better. Because 
I'm not 100% convinced that it is. I personally uh, use yoga as my own path to health. And it's the thing that I'm able to do most consistently, and so I believe in it. But when I talk to patients or friends who are looking for advice about these kinds of things, getting on a bicycle or running or Pilates or whatever it is that you want to do is probably going to be just as effective. And so really doing any kind of physical activity is going to improve your blood flow and your vascular tone. So when we talk about also, you know, how do we advise students or patients or whoever's asking you, it's going to be more than just meditation, but it's also going to be more than just yoga or just cycling or whatever it is that you like to do. And, and everyone's going to have something different that they like. It's nice in this environment because everybody here chooses yoga. Um, but, you know, it's something to think about. But I, I liked this study just because as I was reading it, it, it felt like it spoke to me in terms of what were the positive things that I was doing for myself and what could I recommend to my friends. There's uh, some other things that are on on the horizon, which we don't understand very well yet, but you're going to start hearing the term telomerase coming up. It's an enzyme that's associated with reduced blood pressure and heart disease. We don't have a good sense of exactly how it is, but it has to do with cell division. Even, I mean, you'll see that enzyme in cell division in other species as well. For whatever reason, and we're really early in the process, that's something that's associated with good cardiovascular health. So they're starting to look at, the Howard University has been looking at most, that's the place where they're doing this right now the most, is how transcendental meditation techniques seems to be stimulating telomerase production. We don't yet know exactly what the link is and where that's going to take us, but that may be another answer in what we're looking for in meditation. Is that like when they're meditating once a day or twice a day, or is there any So most gauge? of these studies, when they talk about regular meditation, they're talking about like a three times a week type thing. There's Sometimes it can be difficult to find when you're leafing through these articles and digging through, but what I found most commonly is three times a day, three times a week, sorry, not day, is what they're looking at as a regular meditation practice. So more than just the once a month, oh, I've gone to this relaxation retreat, I'm going to meditate today, or oh, I seem to have time right now, I'm going to do this. They're really looking for something that's more regular. Immune health is another thing that is sort of proven and definitively linked to, to meditation, which I think is really cool. Meditation increases electric, electrical activity in the prefrontal cortex, your right anterior insula, and the right hippocampus. And so what does that mean? Well, you don't have to dissect a brain to understand what this means. What's important about this is that those areas of the brain control your positive emotions, your awareness, and your anxiety. But it's right next door to the command center for your immune system. So essentially, we're talking about literally millimeters away. And what's so finesse about the brain is that if you go one millimeter over, we're talking about a totally different center of the brain and a totally different function of the brain, which is awesome. But also what that means is if you're increasing blood flow to one area of the brain, 
the area next door often gets a really good benefit. So if you're meditating and you're controlling your positive emotions and your awareness and you're decreasing your anxiety based on increased blood flow to that area, you're also getting increased blood flow to the command center for your immune system, which is immediately next door. And so I would have loved to have participated in this study, but Davidson et al. did a group with biotech workers, and they had two groups. One group was in a meditation group that was an eight-week-long meditation intervention that they were doing in the workplace. So they had someone come in, and they provided this meditation sort of intervention in the workplace on a regular basis. Everybody was there every day. Everyone got to participate equally. And the second group was the waitlist group. So they knew that they were going to get this eight weeks later. And so on some level, they were going to get to like make some of those positive changes in their life too. At the beginning of this, everybody got a flu shot. And eight weeks later, they measured the antibody titers to the flu shot. And so they measured essentially what was the body's response to the flu shot in these people. And it was three times higher in the meditation group. So these people had a much better, much more robust response to the flu shot than the people who weren't meditating. And essentially that came from the, oh, we're increasing blood flow to this area. The place next door gets the benefit too. And so I thought that was so cool and really just that would have been something fun to take part in (laughs) just to see how it worked. And so that's uh, it for the talk. And now we can open the floor for questions. I know that's a lot to chew on, (laughs) but uh, any questions? Hi, good afternoon. My name's Sharon Diane Mazoulis. I enjoyed your talk very much. Thank you. Um, I had one question, and I think for this group, we all might feel like it's a, uh, well, duh answer. However, what would you say to someone who says, well, if meditation is giving me the same anti-anxiety or fighting depression tools that this pill does, but I can just take the pill, aside from the numerous side effects from those pills and different pharmaceuticals out there, what would, how would you feel you'd respond in your position? That's a great question. And I think the answer really is in the people who have tried those medications. And most people will say, if you've had any issues with anxiety or depression and you've taken a medication for that, that it's not a 100% solution. It does not solve all your problems. It does not solve all your problems on the first day. I think those meditations, uh, medications, excuse me, are great, but that we need to do other things along with that. And that's a mistake that we make in this society. And I see it every day at work in the hospital with people wanting a magic bullet and an immediate answer to their problems without putting in the effort themselves to solve some of these problems. So I think it's a great idea to take medications for this stuff. And depression can be terribly crippling and really destructive for families and individuals. And we should approach it from a multidisciplinary approach. The pills are great. Your psychiatrist is great. Your support from your family is great. What else can we do? Because it's more than just one thing. People want an an immediate answer. It's very frustrating because there is no immediate answer for any of this stuff. So if we can add things to make it better, we should add things. For the one person who taking the antidepressant helped the first time 
and had no problems ever again, great. You don't have to try meditation. But for the other people who've struggled through these things, I think finding other solutions or adjunct solutions is important. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else have another question that you want to share? Thank you. Hi, I'm Maureen Herring. Thank you for the talk. I was very interested in the study about cognitive decline in the elderly. Can you say a little bit more about the methodology? Did they use um, guided meditation or self-meditation? And also, two parts, has there been any follow-up on that? Because that sounded pretty profound. Has there been any, any work that you're aware of to take that to the next level? It hasn't been looked at as much as I think it should be. Most of the studies really come from the other things that we did where we looked at what happens to your brain if you learn a new task. And if you train the brain, does it make changes? And then that one study where you saw positive changes after five years. We need to start looking at it more aggressively on how it affects the elderly and like what is the long-term changes. There hasn't been as many follow-up studies as we would like, and some of that has to do with just the challenges of creating these studies, because long-term studies require that you are able to continually get in contact with people, that you can bring them back into the office, you can do tests again, you can get repeat MRIs, people move away, people aren't interested in participating sometimes later, or they have new health problems that make it more difficult for them to participate in studies. And so keeping up with the patients is what has made that difficult. A lot of what we're looking at now, for better or for worse, is anecdotal. But And it, all of these things are guided meditations. They're not asking you to just sit and figure it out on your own. They're using apps or coaches or teachers to do this. And so you know where you should go with this and where it would be a great place to get data would probably be in the veterans hospital system. There are some problems in the veterans hospital system, but one of the great things is that it's a national healthcare system with a national medical record. So you can keep track of people better. Even if they move, you still have access to their record. I think that's probably in my mind going to be the wave of how we can achieve better research data for that. Thank you. Well, I was going to say, I think it's so important to look at this stuff from from these different angles, you know? So I'm, I'm so grateful that you're doing this work because, I mean, we're, at, we're sitting at a yoga studio now and obviously many yogis can say, well, we have, you know, these texts and these books where meditation comes from thousands of years, Patanjali and so on. But it's really great when we're also looking at anything and especially something like this that's changing your brain and your physicality from a medical perspective and from having somebody like you that puts the effort and the energy into this research and really like dedicates a lot and you're a yoga practitioner yourself. So I don't know, to me it's like revolutionary and I really appreciate people like you doing this. Thank you. I wanted to tell you that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I myself, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, obviously I'm a yogi and I'm a yoga teacher, but I, I look for those things. Like I look for those researches, you know, the same way that when I'm teaching the asana practice, yeah, I'm all about feeling and energy, but I also want to know anatomically, like what's happening. And I think that's why you and I do so well with smart flow, because you know, we love like the anatomy of the body and what's happening. And so what's happening to my brain when I'm meditating, knowing 
these studies and these researches just to me it just opens like all so many doors you know from all levels and it's like wow this is so fascinating i think it can be really helpful also for motivating you to keep keep with things in the same way that you some people will say well yoga is just exercise and that's true on some level, but yeah. it can be a lot more. And as you dig deeper into what it is and what it does for your body, if you look into it deeper, you take a teacher training, you you know enhance your practice, you start spending more time, it means something different to you. And for the same thing for meditation, and I, I personally have struggled. I have a very hard time sitting and meditating, but I do stick with it because I believe in what people are looking at in these studies and these changes, and I really want to protect myself. I think that where medicine is going and where our life expectancy is going is that I'm going to live for a long time, and I would like to be able to stay sharp and stay healthy, and I feel like taking these steps towards doing so is a positive step for me, and I think it's very important, but I do also feel like I need to look at hard facts before I do that. Because I've done other things that weren't necessarily as helpful and tried strange diets. And, you know, you try a lot of different stuff and you look into things. If you care about these things, you'll probably be exposed to some stuff that's more hokey and some stuff that's less hokey. But I like to look at the science and the research of it as a way to help motivate myself and give me a place to say to other people, you should try this. This is worth it. Yeah. And you've done this presentation in a hospital, I mean, or something like with mm-hmm. meditation, right? Yes. What hospital was that? Um, I've done stuff at Tulane, actually. I've done a couple activities with uh, residents in training. So the Tulane Pediatrics Residency and also the Tulane Neurology Residency, which included some guided meditation techniques. I did not teach that part myself. I brought in a specialist <laughs> because my practice is still very new in I terms. I totally feel like you could do it. <laughs> It's possible, but I feel like I wanted, I felt more comfortable bringing in someone else, okay. but because he's been doing this for, you know, 30 years and I have not, and, but I felt really comfortable bringing it to this group of doctors and saying, this is going to be a great tool for you in terms of dealing with things in your day-to-day life at work. And I feel like it was a nice Interface because I'm also a doctor, and mm-hmm. so it was like, oh, trust me, I, you know, yeah. I'm not bringing you something weird, and yeah. um, it, it went really well. I it love a- it that you're like, you know, bringing these talks to the hospitals and into the medical community, and everyone's now seems to be having a conversation about it, which is so awesome. I like to thing. see a more open mind in the hospital system, and it's coming, but. Slowly. I think we're getting there. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like, coming. It's, it's slower coming. than what we want, <laughs> yeah. but we're getting there. But it's there. And in yeah. fact, with the, one of the cardiovascular studies that was done uh, was actually done at Oshner. And I was tickled by this because the Oshner car- cardiology group is really good and conservative. Like this is a conservative group of predominantly men who do a great job at cardiology, and they, they were the ones who did the meditation with heart disease study uh, that was published in 2014. And I was very tickled because I knew a bunch of the people in the study. and was like, oh, these guys are doing this, all right? Like, things are changing. We're going to look at this differently and see about, you know, that comprehensive approach. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> 
Thank you for having Yay. me. Thank you for coming to our yoga teacher training. <laughs> Always a pleasure to be here. And uh, if anyone, thanks so much for sharing on Life on Earth podcast as well. I hope all of our listeners are enjoying this conversation. Uh, we've also been filming it and we've got a, got a lot of feedback like from Paris, from France, from England. Like, thank <laughs> you for putting this. This is so amazing. And I've had some other doctor friends that joined the conversation. Cool. Isn't like social media and all this stuff so awesome? It's like, you're like, you know, it's, we have access to so much in the world. So anyways, I appreciate it. But if anyone from every everyone here or there or podcast wants to get a hold of you, will you tell us a little bit about, and also your yoga studio? So actually, after finishing my teacher training here <laughs> in the Shanti Shala, in this wonderful environment, I was inspired to go out on my own and open a studio here in New Orleans. I have Live Oak Yoga, which is my studio. It's on the other side of town. And you can reach me at my email address anytime with any questions. I'm at liveoakyoga at yahoo.com. So that's a great way to get in contact with me if you want to talk about and any of this stuff. And you teach yoga there as well, right? I do. I do. That's cool. So maybe you'll see some people in your classes too. Everybody's well. always welcome. Thanks for listening to Life on Earth. You can help us by taking a few minutes to leave a rating and review on iTunes. For more inspiring content, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Search Life on Earth in iTunes or visit lifeonearth.podbean.com.